Hebrews, the 10th chapter. And the context we're studying is one basic warning. Uh, well, there's several warnings in here, but the, the warning primarily has to do with verse 25. As the writer admonishes those Hebrew people not to forsake the assembling of themselves together as a manner of some is. So there were some who had already turned back to Judaism and uh, abandoned the privileges that Christ gave them to come into the throne room of God and to speak boldly to him as sons and daughters. And uh, so the warning is, here's what, uh, here's what the uh, aftermath is when you uh, forsake the assembly and... Uh, Particularly, the last of verse 25 was a warning to them about the day of A.D. 70 that Jesus had warned the apostles about, or warned them about in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so, verse 26 through 39 is warnings of the severity, what it means to reject Christ and the privileges, consequently, that he gave us this only in him the privileges of salvation the privileges to come into the presence of God with our problems and troubles as a son does to a father and of course when we get to Hebrews 12 the writer is going to tell us that that privilege is based on our sonship and if we and the fact that when God accepts a son he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And there again is another warning. If you're not willing to endure chastening and scourging of the Lord, then you're a bastard. In other words, the word bastard implies that you can't claim God as your father. You're fatherless when it comes to your spiritual nature. And so we got down last week to verse 29 and that's where we're going to continue this morning with this severe warning of what it means to forsake Christ uh, let me read verse 26 through 28 and then we'll begin in verse 29 because we've already studied these three verses in our analytical study of each verse and each statement in those verses. Verse 26, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. There's nothing there. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that shall consume the enemies of God. And so to leave Christ is to be considered by God an enemy. Well, we already studied that. I'm not, I'll try not to waste our time this morning going back over some of this stuff. Verse 28. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so it's clear here that the writer uses the severity of the lesser law under Moses 
to confirm the more direct consequences for violate, violation uh, and rejection of the higher law of Christ. Uh, so, uh, so verse 29, that's where we're starting this morning. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trodden the Son of God underfoot and who has, translate, uh, has uh, treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has uh, insulted the Spirit of grace? Now, in case you didn't notice, there's three things that he said there that we do when we uh, forsake the assembly and go back to Judaism as they were uh, prone to do. He says, number one, they trample the Son of God underfoot. That's pretty serious, isn't it? And they treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant. There's number two that, was sanct that sanctified them. And number three, who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Now, by way of comparison here in this verse, a man that rejected the law of Moses and refused to be governed by it, the physical punishment imposed the death penalty. Pretty serious thing. They were to be stoned to death. But God says it will be much more severe spiritual penalty uh, that awaits the man who has rejected Christ. That man has done these three things. He has trampled the Son of God under his foot, and he's treated as an unholy thing the blood of Jesus. And number three, he's insulted the Holy Spirit. Now, to trample underfoot Jesus would indicate an attitude of loathing and disgust, or uh, disgust and distrust. When a person steps on a scorpion, uh, that's enough to kill him. But if he proceeds to stomp it into the ground, he expresses his anger and abhorrence. And that's the nature of trodden underfoot the Son of God. You show your anger, you turn your anger against the church, against what it teaches, against the truth of God's Word, and all of the privileges that you've been given because of Christ's sacrifice. Such action toward Jesus would indicate that the person no longer believes him to be the Messiah <clears throat> and is expressing his disgust toward Jesus. In Hebrews 6 and verse 5, he tells us the man... Uh, the man has crucified on his own account Jesus Christ anew. In other words, he has rejected him. He believes that he is an imposter. And that is the deliberate sin that's spoken of in verse 26. For if we sin willfully. Now we discussed verse 26. Anytime we sin, we sin willfully. In a weak moment but it's a willful sin. But this is not talking about that 
nature of sin in, as we walk in Christ, as we attend the assembly. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the sin of abandoning Christ and going back to the Mosaical law, which had no power, no authority. So keep that in mind. <coughs> now, let me tell you about this fellow that he's describing here. Uh, that crucifies the Son of God afresh and counts the blood of his covenant as unworthy and he turns with disgust and disdain toward the truth and he speaks angrily about it. Years ago I ran into a fellow that's still alive here in Benton City and he went off into a rage about Christ and here's what he said in his anger. He said, if I was walking down the street in Benton City and I saw Jesus Christ on the other side of the street, I would deliberately cross the street and go spit in his face. I never heard such hard words from somebody who was uh, uh, angry with the salvation that God offers through his son. That's what happens when you turn against Christ. You build a bulwark of uh, anteism or uh, disdain for what you rejected because you've got to, to, to live with yourself. You, you can't live with yourself knowing that you left something that was very valuable. You've got to devalue it. <coughs> All right, so he said that you not only trample the Son of God underfoot, uh, and that's how people see it. How does, uh, how does people see it when you, you fail to show up at the car races? I'm using that as an illustration. Nothing wrong with going to a car race. <laughs> Don't get that idea. But if you're prone to go to the car races every week, or the rodeos, and the people that's expecting you there begin to not see you after two or three times. They're going to get concerned, ain't they? They're going to say, what's the matter? You, you don't have any use for the rodeo anymore? So they can see your disdain and your uh, uh, trodden underfoot the Son of God by refusing to attend the assembly of the saints when they come to worship pretty serious thing isn't it well he ain't finished he's going to go on and on here about what it means to to uh, forsake the assembly now we take it as well it doesn't matter whether I go or whether I don't you know it matters you don't know the the, uh, the influence you have on others there's people watching your life that you don't even know about and particularly in the church. And what do you think it does to their spirit when they attend and they see that you didn't even bother to show up? What does that tell them? You don't count it as worth a whole lot. You see it as, well, I can if I want, and I don't, if I have to, if I don't. All right, well, that's your privilege. But here's how God looks at it. 
It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If they died being stoned by disobeying uh, a physical law, how much sore punishment do you suppose the man has thought of who trods underfoot the Son of God and counts the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing? <coughs> and so there's that other phrase there that we want to look at. Treating as an unholy thing the blood of Jesus. Uh, that shows a man's attitude toward the sacrifice of Christ. The word unholy in the Greek is kanoian or common. And so you count the blood of Christ as just common. Nothing great about it. He's trying, he, he is saying that Jesus' blood has no more redeeming power than ordinary human blood. But this was the blood of the covenant. The, the scriptures declared, the Hebrew writer declared, the blood of the covenant that Jesus inaugurated. How do you inaugurate the new covenant? With his blood. Hebrews 9.15 affirms, that it was through Jesus' blood that he mediated the new covenant. Two, this was the blood that had once sanctified them and set them apart. You remember the word sanctify means just to be set apart. Jesus' blood had cleansed the man, granted him a new uh, and clear conscience. We've already studied that. And he gave him throne room standing in the presence of God and obtained for him the promise of eternal rest with God. Now, I enumerated those things because I see four of them there. Number one, uh, Jesus' blood has done what? It cleansed that man. How much worth do you put in that? Now let me stop right there for a minute. The cleansed man, the man that appreciates being clean, is what kind of a man? He's not the jubilant, frivolous man that you meet in the world. He's a man of tears, a man of sorrow. He's a man that's broken. He's the man of Romans 7, verse 24. You remember that man? He come to see his sin, and he hated it. He, he found nothing but disgust and disdain in his human performance as a human. And he cried out, O oh, wretched, worn-out man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of sin and death? And so the man that comes to Christ is not a, a young person who's just jubilant and don't understand life itself. It's not that child or that person who has not come to appreciate the damnation of sin, what it does to the human family, what it does to our families. The man that comes to Christ is a broken man. And that broken man reveals himself because he does what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And so, 
And so here's what I'm trying to say. Salvation is for who? A lot of times our kids, and a lot of people, not just children, but adults, they get the idea, oh, I heard the preacher say about baptism, it saves you. They run and be baptized. They have no remorse for sin. They have no understanding of how damning it is. They haven't looked at it. They haven't seen the end result of sin in its expressions. It destroys homes and people and families and nations. And they haven't looked at it. But the man that's open to salvation is a broken man. The man that cries out, Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. And so when one forsakes the assembly, he's telling everybody, I don't mean a whole lot. Hell, you can go if you want, and if you don't, that's okay too. God will save you because he's good. Well, the writer wants him to know it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. You don't, you don't flirt around. Because in the Old Testament, it was God's law. If you violated the law of Moses, you died at the hand of two or three witnesses. You were stoned to death. And you can imagine. And, there, and it's, uh, when you study that, you find out that everybody in the, in the community had to throw a stone. You couldn't say, oh, oh that bothers me. I'm not going to watch. No, you had to watch and you had to throw by the command of God. And they died before two or three witnesses. Now in view of that, and how insignificant the, the physical law is in compared to the spiritual law, what do you think is going to happen to a man who turns his back and walks and treads underfoot the Son of God? <laughs> Fearful thing. That's what he said. <laughs> so there's four things mentioned there uh, Jesus' blood has cleansed that man but to, again to appreciate the cleansing he's, not a, he's got to uh, uh, he's got to appreciate the awfulness of what he was cleansed from he's got to appreciate it you can buy your child a brand new Ford truck. When he graduates from high school, that's generally what happens with a lot of people. And that boy takes it out, doesn't check the oil, doesn't check the tire, doesn't check anything, just drives the hell out of that truck. Does he really appreciate it? Within a year, it's wrecked, sitting in the somewhere alongside the road, all torn up. He had no appreciation because he never had to walk. He never learned to appreciate walking. Well, here's a man who is described as cleansed from, by the blood of Christ and doesn't know how to appreciate it. Okay, I'm cleansed. I heard the preacher say I was cleansed. That's all I need to know. Crying out loud. Can't we just stop a moment in life's way and look to see what it means to be cleansed? And cleansed from what? And secondly, uh, the writer has already uh, told
told us in our study of Hebrews that he's granted us a clear conscience. It means a whole lot to have a clear conscience, doesn't it? What's the matter with them people who commit suicide? Their conscience bothers them till they take their own life. He's given us a clear conscience. I know how ugly I am. I know how ugly I will die being ugly. I'm like my shibboleth. I'm a cripple. Crippled with sin. And there ain't a whole lot I can do about it except I put a resistance against it. I give it my all in resisting it. But I've got a clear conscience because I know passages like 1 John 1, 7 and the blood of His Son continually cleanses me. And I have a clear conscience. You want to indict me as being something ugly? I'll agree with you. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. But what you're not saying is I'm under the blood covenant. And I have a clear conscience. And so the man who rejects Christ has rejected the cleansing of his blood and the, uh, the effects of a clear conscience, number two. And number three, he gives, uh, Christ's blood gives him throne room standing. He's able to go into the very presence of God as we've already saw in our previous study. And number four, he's obtained for him through the blood, the blood of Christ, the promise of eternal rest with God. It would be totally ridiculous to affirm that such a man was not once saved by the blood of Jesus. He was. For he had been sanctified and that equals salvation. Hebrews 10 verse 11 says that Jesus' sacrifice made us holy. We didn't make ourselves holy. That's what the verse says, that he made us, his sacrifice made us holy. We didn't make ourselves holy. He did. And verse 14 affirms that those who have been made holy are now forever sacrificially perfected under the blood of Christ. You see how precious that blood is? You and I don't have to worry about sin because it's already been paid for. The debt has already been paid for. What I commit tomorrow and the next day has already been paid for. I can stand with a clear conscience recognizing the cleansing nature of God's blood. Do not try to convince the Hebrew writer here that this was not a saved man he's talking about. The reason this point is stressed is because some false teachers assume that once a person is born again, he cannot so sin as to be lost. That's an old doc a Baptist doctrine. They fail to see the warnings in Hebrews. Don't forsake the assembly. Don't uh, take very serious what you've been given, like Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we heard, lest at any time we drift away from them. And here's why. Because if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression received within itself a just recompense of reward, how do you think we'll ex escape if we neglect so great salvation? 
which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and afterwards was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. And God was in there too, in verse 4, because he was also bearing witness with them with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost as God will. But the Hebrew writer quite strongly affirms the contrary, that these people were once enlightened and now have lost that, uh, that salvation. The next thing mentioned about this man also confirms he has lost his salvation. He has, and then the verse says that he has insulted the spirit of grace. Where do you learn about the Spirit of Grace? Or where do you learn about God's grace? Through the Spirit. Where do, how does the Spirit do that? Through the written Word. Jesus in John 6.63 made it very clear. He told the Jews, the words I speak unto you, they're Spirit giving and they're life giving. If I would receive the Spirit of God, how to receive it? Through the Word. It's an intellectual, spiritual thing. God speaks to me and He teaches me of His Spirit. And I gradually, as I walk with Him in 1 John 1, 7, I take on the attributes of His Spirit because He's taught me through the Word. So it's not a miraculous thing. It's a very... Uh, ordinary thing to when we study and read the scriptures and that's what Paul told Timothy study to show yourself approved unto God how's that approval come well your walk has changed when you study isn't it you study you learn and it changes it and there's a metamorphosis that takes place in your life in your attitude in your outlook at things and because of that it changes you and people say Boy, uh, I've seen quite some changes in the last couple of years in you. Well, you ought to, because if you allow the Word of God to make those changes. So he has insulted the Spirit of grace if he neglects the assembly and pays no attention to it. Now, this is the third thing that he does that makes him an enemy of God. The Holy Spirit is given as a seal or confirmation of sonship. The only way that I have the confidence of knowing I'm a son of God is how? By the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit's revelation. A person uh, places a brand or mark on his property to confirm ownership. Brands his cattle. Puts a mark on them. So God gives the Holy Spirit to Christians to prove their own, their sonship. There are a, new, uh, a number of New Testament passages that establish this view. We're going to look at a few of them. Uh, Acts 2.38 There was an audience that was cut to the heart with the truth. They recognized that they had murdered the Messiah that they were waiting for. They didn't recognize him. Peter had proved it to them on the day of Pentecost. <coughs> he went back in prophecy and uh, 
eyewitness testimony, and uh, he used that evidence to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. Incidentally, what also proved Jesus to be the Son of God? You ever wondered why the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 of Jesus? <coughs> that proved the seed lineage of God as being the one that had been prophesied through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the way through the Old Testament. And it took him right back to the very be- to the beginning. And so the genealogies to the Jews should have proved that he was the son of David, the promised king. They didn't see it. Because religion to them was kind of like religion to a lot of Christians today or professing Christians. Just a bunch of jumping up and down and being happy and smiling. (laughs) What's in that? (laughs) Acts 2.38 Here Peter spoke to these people, cut to the heart. They cried out in verse 37, Men and brethren, what should we do? What did Peter tell them? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name or by the authority of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's what it's for. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit promise you and I? Sonship. Eternal life with God. (laughs) Well, to turn away from uh, and forsake the assembly uh, would be an insult to the Spirit of God's grace. And uh, in, in view of that, also look at uh, uh, Acts 5 and verse 29 says, And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And then in verse 32 he says, And we are his witnesses of these things, and also is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. And so they declared that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we are witnesses of the We are not witnesses, but uh, uh, the Holy Ghost is also a witness to you and me through the Word. How do you learn about Jesus? What did you learn about Him? Well, the how and the what was by the Holy Spirit through the written Word. Oh. 
Look at Romans 8, verse 15 and 16. Received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Have a Father. The Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together with him. And so the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. It didn't say the Spirit bears witness to our spirit. You see, that's the Pentecostal stand. Is oh, if you're good enough, God will come to you and speak to you privately. No, 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 no. And if the Spirit did speak to anyone today, <coughs> he'd be a liar. And you know why? Here's someone who claims the Spirit comes and talks to them. What would that make the spirit? A liar. If he said anything different than what you can find in this book. Because didn't Peter tell us that we have all things that pertain unto the life and the godliness through the knowledge of him that's called us to glory and virtue? Second Peter 1 verse 3. Would, if the Holy Spirit come to you, what could he say to you other than what he's already said in the Word, that you're supposed to study to show yourself approved unto God. And if he says anything different than what's in this Word, he's a liar. He's a liar. So the Spirit bears witness with our spirit. In other words, when my spirit comes into compliance with what the Word of the Spirit says, then we're in agreement. It says to be baptized for the mission of sins, and I'm baptized for the mission of sins. There's where me and the Spirit agree with one another. I agree with what he said. He said to be baptized for the mission of sins, and I'm baptized. So the Spirit bears witness with my spirit when I've complied with it that I am a son of God. And there's the confidence I have. There's the assurance I have that I stand before God as one of his sons. I have a dignified position in the family. I've been adopted, accepted in all the phrases that the New Testament uses to speak of that sonship. Well, look at Galatians 4 and verse 6. I just picked out a few here. Galatians 4 and verse 6. Ephesians, no wonder it didn't sound right. And because you are sons, in other words, you've been born into his family through baptism, by faith, obedience, and baptism, 
And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, uh, hearts crying, Abba, Father. And so by the assurance of the word of God, of my salvation, it enables me and it tells me that I have a right to cry out unto God as a firstborn son, Abba, Father. Because in, under the Hebrew system, only the firstborn could call his father Abba. That was the endearment that only the firstborn enjoyed. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. In whom uh, ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. Now what, what did they heard? The word of truth. They didn't sit around and, and all of a sudden say, Oh, I got the Spirit and He just tells me these things. No, they heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also after that you believed what the Spirit told you through the word. Ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now on these trains, they put a seal, a government seal, a federal seal on the door of those trains, those boxcars that go to buy. And to tamper with one of them is a federal wrap. You don't tamper with them. But that seal is a guarantee that it gets its destination with its cargo intact. And here, the Spirit has been given us as a seal. He's an assurance to me that I'm a son of God. He's a seal as he testified of what was done for me and how it was done and what it implies, what it carries with it. <coughs> and my sonship is contingent upon my study to show myself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, handling the right, the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 <clears throat> Look at Ephesians 4, verse 30. And we'll just cut it off there as far as we want to go. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed under the day of redemption. You have this seal, and you know it because it's. The Spirit is that seal that secures you. The reason you're here this morning is because of the Spirit's affirmation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world. And so Peter told him in Acts 2, if we back up to the first verse we started with, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And ye shall receive the gift. What does the Holy Spirit offer? Salvation. And he's a seal of that salvation. He's a seal of God's dealing with you as a son and his love for you. Oh, there's 
many other passages. That's just a few. So the indwelling spirit gives confirmation of salvation and sonship. That's about a simple way you can put it. And if we're sons, then we are heirs of God. That's Romans 8, verse 15 and 16. And Christians are told in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Spirit. That's the one we just looked at. And with whom ye were sealed for the day of redemption. So you're very secure. You're sealed. You have a guarantee. The Spirit guarantees you the fact that you, you're on your way to heaven. And so, consequently, when one insults the Spirit of grace, as is suggested here by the, by the Hebrew writer, he has driven him from himself by the rejection of Messiah. <coughs> Verse 30. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. Now here is what God says about that individual. He is mine to avenge. I will repay. God's not going to send an angel to repay or judge. He's going to do it himself. It's a very serious thing. This citation comes from Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35. We won't turn back there uh, because he's just quoting from here. But Deuteronomy 32, 35. The context of Deuteronomy is sufficient. It is the giving to Israel the covenant of blessing and cursing on that occasion. author adds another Old Testament citation as he says the Lord will judge his people and this citation comes from the same context of Deuteronomy 32 and verse 36 what we need to see and I don't know if we've ever really brought out this clear But you know the covenant of blessing and cursing in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, those three chapters? Do you know that that's how God deals with all the nations? He'll bless you in his ways. And he'll bless you in this situation, in that situation, in that situation. And for 15 verses in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, God will tell you what all he'll do for you in blessing you. But then in chapter in verse 15 it turns. It goes to the covenant of cursing. And God said, if you fail to walk in my ways, here's what I'll do to you. I'll curse you in the field. I'll curse you here. I'll curse you in your in your productivity, in your crops, in your doings, in your goings. And so that covenant of blessing and cursing is the nature of God as He deals with all the nations, including America. And that's why we're going to hell in a handbasket. We've kicked God out of school, kicked him out of government. We've done everything to desecrate his sacrifice of his son. We've done disdain to him uh, and spoken angrily of, uh, of his redemptive work of humanity. 
how much sore punishment suppose ye they be thought worthy of? Come on in. So it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And uh, because God says, uh, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 12 and verse 29 states that our God is a consuming fire. We haven't got there yet, but that's a statement that's made there. The words of verse 31 seem to be an adaptation of 2 Samuel 24 and verse 14, where David clearly expects God to do right about his people. He said in that context, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Now these are comforting words for the believer, but they're also very terrible words for the apostate from Christ. And so there's the negative and the positive side of that statement. This thought goes back to the fearful expectation of judgment mentioned in verse 27. When God consumes his enemies, they will fall headlong into the eternal penalties of divine judgment. And so we're going to have to stop there. Time's up. But keep in mind as you read this that all of these verses, 26 through 39, is a severe warning to the Hebrew. Don't, don't abandon the assembling of yourselves together as a matter of some is. And when you assemble, you exhort yourself, uh, exhort one another in remembrance of the coming day of A.D. 70 when God's wrath will destroy the unbelieving Jew, and he did. And he used Titus, the Roman general, to stamp the guts out of Jerusalem, out of the temple. The city was leveled where there wasn't stone, one stone upon another as God give a physical sign of the finalization of the Hebrew system and consequently the beginning of the commencement of the new system in Christ. John makes it clear in John 1.17 the law, it came by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There's a difference. And he's trying to tell these Jews this in Hebrews the superiority of Christ in every respect and He's finishing up here. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Because you've done all these things despite the spirit of grace. Trodden underfoot the Son of God. Counted the covenant wherewith you were sanctified an unholy thing. And so we'll begin right there at verse uh, uh, 32 next week. Thank you. Don't point your finger at me. There's three guys.